So I'm very happy to be back here tonight. I realize that I've missed four out of the last six weeks, and uh, I feel I miss this group when I'm not here, and so I'm really happy to, happy to be here. And I, I won't be leaving again for a Tuesday night until April, if that matters to anybody. <laughs> oh, yeah, just what I need. A little pressure. <laughs> Tonight I, I want to elaborate a little bit of, on this blessing that we shared in the... In the um, before the sitting, uh, wishing that our politicians, bureaucrats, that they did something, uh, that they stop fighting and do something for, uh, do what they were sent there to do. And, and this is not to say that we can't all have an enormous impact uh, on our world, ourselves, but uh, it's a unique role for the, the government to attend to some things that we can't really do so easily by ourselves. But tonight I want to speak about what we can do uh, by ourselves with each other. And it got uh, inspired by one of my colleagues who shared a, a line that, and I don't remember who the author of the line was, but the line was, good done anywhere is good done everywhere. And this line, good done anywhere is good done everywhere, reminds us of the deepest realization of an awakened heart, an awakened being, the deepest realization that uh, when we really touch reality, we are not unlike that little duck in the poem uh, by Donald Babcock where he described, he's described as easing himself into the boundless, just where it touches him. That when we touch a sense of immediacy, when we come to the single point, what the Buddha called ekagata, one-pointedness, which the deeper meaning is the one point that includes everything, when we touch into that one point, we cease to feel ourselves as separate from the whole. We cease to fall, to be under that delusion that we are the one wave that has gotten separated from the ocean, which is how we feel a lot of the time. And this is, this is the natural expression of this realization is love, is compassion, is great joy when that connection meets joy and a boundless uh, vacuous mountain-like equanimity that can just sense life as it is the only way it could be up to this moment a deep harmony uh, with things just the way they are as much as our heart in its response of love would like things to be other than they are much of the time we understand deeply that the way life is happening in this very moment is a part of a a kind of perfect unfolding unfortunately part of that perfect unfolding is the mingling of not only the most wholesome forces in this world, but also the forces of greed, hatred, and ignorance. And for that, we 
we have to come to some peace that this is how it is. At the same time, our heart tells us that we do everything that we can to be a benefit, to make something good of our life, and to do even any good we do for ourselves, we do good for everyone. And that there's no one, there's no one in this world apart from us. There is no color or shape or size or gender. There is no, no one who is really any different from us in that way that we are all uh, touching and part of the boundless right where it touches us. We are really just, we are one of one taste. And this is the realization of the Buddha that uh, this illusion of independence, of, of illusion of self, is, uh, is a, it's an optical delusion of consciousness. And in fact, we are, as Thich Nhat Hanh would put it, we inter-are. We are, we are completely connected. And he talks a lot about interbeing. And that's to me how we can to some degree understand this line good done anywhere is good done everywhere but it's one thing to have a, a philosophical view of this and it's one thing to be someone who realizes this and their life becomes the expression of uh, expression of this the rest of us have to rely on uh, reflection and then practice practice of uh, actualizing this deep this deep truth that good done anywhere is good done everywhere and the teachings of the buddha offer a in so many different ways but offer a map or a set of a technology a set of practices that can help us to uh, to make a real difference in the world Again, as we speak about making a real difference in the world, and it can start with the people who have to live with us every day, can, in the smallest ways, but when we speak of this, it's a reminder that the die is not cast for our lives. There are certain karmas, there are certain actions that have been set in motion. We can't avoid the fruit of the actions that we've already, that all the seeds that have been planted up to this point. But to the degree that we wake up, the degree to, to, the degree to which we are in any moment present, just as simple as you knowing you're sitting here right now, being, having clear comprehension, clear perception that you're sitting here, any moment like that, that you have clear perception that you are here, is a moment of open creativity. It is a moment of emptiness. In other words, this, the moment is completely open to planting either a seed of, of delusion or a seed of wisdom, a seed of, of hatred or a seed of, a seed of kindness, a seed of, of altruism or a seed of selfishness. That is your, that is the fruit one, it's your birthright. It is the fruit of being, having the capacity to be awake. So any of us, if we are awake, are going to, knowing, even, even intuitively knowing that we're a part of the whole, we are not going to want to plant seeds that cause suffering. Anybody? 
Is this making sense at all? Nobody's going to want to do that. And most of us want to plant seeds, seeds of, uh, that lead to happiness, that lead to well-being, that lead to an expression of caring and connection, not to lead to more sense of isolation and separation. The Buddha basically had three baskets that he described as ways of, of loosening the, the bonds of separation and increasing the sensitivity and the sense of ourselves as uh, existing uh, together with each other, every shape and size. And those three baskets are called the three baskets of the Dharma. Now, I could, I could have brought another three. There are many different three baskets, but the one I want to talk about tonight is the, the three baskets of what are called dana, sila, and bhavana. Dana, sila, bhavana. Dana means generosity. Sila means ethics and morality. Bhavana means the training of our hearts and minds. Meditation. These three baskets, three domains, uh, three capacities that we have to turn our hearts toward living in harmony with this truth that good done anywhere is good done everywhere. Another way of saying that we don't exist ourselves alone apart from each other. I got inspired because I was speaking to Andy before the group and he was talking about all the people, there are many, many homeless people uh, in the neighborhood and I don't know where you were today and people are asking for a meal or money or, and we can easily fall into a kind of uh, identification with our relatively better fortune than someone that may be homeless and may not have enough to eat. And it may even, it may even move to the extreme of aversion to seeing people panhandling or asking for money. But it is really a part of our practice to melt away that kind of ego contraction and do what any open heart would do, which means sometimes, it doesn't mean you give all the time, but to make some kind of gesture of generosity. And it may not be resources. It may be a note of kindness, a voice of kindness saying, I I bet it's tough. It's really hard to be homeless. Even a gesture like that is the expression of generosity. Normally when we talk about generosity, we talk about it in the context of how the teachings have been kept alive for 2,500 years. And, it, and it's beautiful to talk about that. How a system was created between the lay community, all the people who have, uh, have challenges in their lives, and live a, a live a a, um, a householder life or a conventional life, uh, a, an interdependence between those who live a conventional life and those who live a monastic life, and this is how a system was created of mutual generosity and mutual support. And this has gone on for 2,600 years. Most of you know this whole scene, how those who offered teachings and support to the lay community, 
they did that as their practice of generosity. And it was, they gave from the heart. They gave really expecting nothing. They gave out of their practice of dana. And the lay community, as their practice of dana, would provide for the requisites, the housing, the shelter, and food of the, of the nuns and the monks. And this whole system was set up. Why would they set up a system where, where uh, there's no, uh, there's no, you're not asking for, you're not asking for a fee or things like that? The reason that the Buddha set up that whole system and made sure that the monastic community lived within a very close proximity of the lay community was to give the opportunity for the lay community to cultivate the heart of generosity. That was their practice of generosity and practice of compassion to give people the opportunity to start practicing giving. Because we do have a tendency toward selfishness and self-interest. Have you noticed? And it's a very beautiful thing when you see the way that it's practiced in Asia. Monks still go on alms rounds, and the lay community stands beside, uh, alongside the road in some of the villages, and they put food into the bowls of the monks. And you can see, and I've had this direct experience by being the recipient of, of that kind of spirit of generosity, you can see the joy that comes for them in having offered uh, that, uh, that food to the, to the monastics. And when, those of you who've sat with me know that I love to talk about when I was in Burma, practicing in this very, very poor country, and people... Uh, People would, uh, families would come to the monastery and feed six and seven hundred people at a time. One family giving half of their income to support people being able to practice. And I just was riding on their coattails. But they would, their name would be on a bulletin board. They would be sitting behind a cordoned off area and they would be beaming with the joy of having offered the meal to all of those six hundred people that day. Literally half of their annual income because of the, the spirit of generosity was so embedded in their culture. Now that's really in regard to the nuns and the monks. That's not exactly uh, why the Buddha set it up. It was not the specifics of giving to nuns and monks or lay people like me. It was to allow them to cultivate that joyous, liberating factor of generosity knowing that not just in offering to nuns and monks, but having that, that, um, that quality flowing in one's consciousness brings so much joy to the giver and joy to the receiver in whatever way it's expressed. And it really doesn't matter which way it's expressed. It could be that those words of kindness. It could be opening a door for somebody. It could be acknowledging the, someone's challenges, just listening. It can be so many things. The Buddha was, was very clear about why he gave it to, in terms of nuns and monks, because he thought that the teachings that were offered were priceless and that they should be accessible to everyone. So it was in that kind of spirit of generosity. But most important was the 
because he wanted to highlight the importance of cultivating generosity in our lives. He talked about the, its importance as being so high in his thought about what really liberates our hearts and brings benefit to all. He said, if we knew how important it was, we would not let a single meal pass without sharing it. How many times a day do we think about being generous? Or how many times a day do we think about what's in it for me? What I want to happen? I think that's why Rumi says in some way, he's on to this, this tendency towards self-interest and um, ex- excessive self-interest that leads to self-consciousness and fear. He's, he says in one of his poems... What was it? Um, um, failure. <laughs> it starts with failure is the key to the, the queendom or kingdom within. Your prayer should be break the legs of what I want to happen. Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring and finally I have no will. He's recognizing that we, we just exhaust ourselves with the preoccupation with our own internal drama, when our, a sense of well-being and freedom is literally a split second, a half breath away, if we even had the thought of being generous. And the Buddha talked about the joy at the thought of being generous, the joy in the act of it, and the joy of remembering that we acted generously. So I... I can't really tell you how to do that. I, we talk every week about teacher Donna or supporting the Sangha and all that. But this is, this is global. This is every moment of the day thinking about some way that you can offer generosity. Um, and when the impulse arises to follow it because we all have generous impulses but we tend to hold it back by fear and you can reflect on you can make it a practice again this is a creative process we're creating we're cultivating we're training our hearts to incline more toward generosity so at first you will be what the Buddha described as a beggarly giver somebody who gives only that which you don't care about As you go along and you keep practicing it, keep following that impulse, you will be a a queenly or a a princess or princessly giver. Giving away that which you value, but you you can handle giving. You got enough that you can get rid of it. And then the, the queenly or kingly giving, which is giving that which you value most, which requires a, a kind of trust, a trust that, uh, that there is that the, both the wholeness, the joy, and the gladness that comes from giving is worth whatever we risk in, uh, in not having enough. But it doesn't mean to be, uh, to be unwise about our giving. We have to consider what we can give. And we don't want to turn it into a religion as such that we are oblivious to the fact that our giving may put us in some kind of a a compromised uh, state, either our finances or our energy or our time. So we have to be sensible about it. But nevertheless, as much as possible, whenever the impulse arises, to act on it. 
How do you feel just hearing the words generosity fill the room? I, for me, it's, it makes me happy just to say the word generosity. I'm sorry that I have to so much relate to generosity as just the, as this giving and receiving of teachings and and uh, and support for the for the sangha and the teacher. I, it, it's such a limited view of generosity. It's so vast, and it is a sure a sure way to the to at least an element of the heart's release into a sense of connection and. And, uh, and that sense of connection is what really gives us that inherent sense of meaning in our lives. And the sense of isolation, separation, is what often gives us the feeling of lack of meaning, a lack of connection. So anything that I will speak about tonight, all these three baskets, they're all about melting away the illusion of separateness. That doesn't in any way deny that, that it is each of our individual responsibilities. So it doesn't mean the abandonment of the individual. It, mean, it requires the individual to have the sense to know what needs to be cultivated and what needs to be abandoned. So the first one I talked about was, was Donna. The second part is Sila. We talk about that a lot here. Sila is ethics and morality. It means that what you, um, in the context of everything being connected, when we say something harsh or mean, it produces not only a result in our own mind, but it often impacts others. When we, when we speak harmoniously, kindly, non-gossipy, when we tell the truth, it brings benefit not just to oneself, but to many people. So, ethics and morality includes wise livelihood, uh, a livelihood that is, um, this is the basket called sila, it includes wise livelihood, which means not engaging in livelihood that causes harm. Ideally, engaging in a livelihood that, is of, that has some benefit. But in the event that you do some livelihood that doesn't maybe have any obvious benefit, that you do it in a way that has benefit, where you engage in your, in your workday with a, a clear intention to be harmless, to not cause harm. And then out of that to engage in wise action, which means to um, not harm anybody, not harm anybody with your speech, not ha- harm anyone with your sexuality, not harm anyone with the effects of intoxicants, and to uh, not tell lies, to tell the truth, to say what's useful, to say what's harmonious, to say what's timely, and to speak for the benefit of whoever you're speaking to, not to harm them. And to engage in wise action, knowing that, again, what we do, um, how, whatever our actions are, they produce results. Every moment, again, an open, creative possibility to create, to cultivate wholesome forces, goodness, kindness, or uh, forces of ill will, hatred, uh, greed, 
uh, ignorance, more separation. And this is actually a joyful practice too. The joyful practice of telling the truth. Telling the truth. Not embellishing. But also being sensitive to not just say what's true, but what's useful. Sometimes the truth is not useful. Also to refrain from frivolous speech. That's gossip. Just filling up the space. I was just talking some, with someone earlier today about that Cahill Gibran line. I think I mentioned it a few weeks ago here, where he says, Those who can't live in the quietness of their hearts live in their lips. And this is also a commitment to start to feel what the engine is that drives our speech. Is it because I'm not comfortable with myself? So if I'm not, I want to feel that discomfort and let it open my heart. Let it, let it be met, that discomfort be met with compassion. And let that, that truth of my experience be the cause of me finding a home with myself and not have to live in my lips. So looking at what the engine behind our speech is, and often our speech, our gossip, is really trying to rally, is trying to make a case for the prosecution against someone else or making a, a, a case for, for inflation about ourselves, make ourselves look better. But the general, you can feel for yourself what the, what the driving force is behind your speech if you really take this on. But just in general, see if you can stop gossiping. Talking about third parties, that's one of the parts of the training. And most of the people who've taken on that practice realize that 90% of their speech disappeared pretty quickly. So anyway, play with that. I'm sure you can hear from this if you were really going to practice non-harming in body, speech, and mind. You know that it would bring you a greater sense of well-being. And it would be not just a gift to yourself, it would be a gift to others. Good done anywhere is good done everywhere. Now this alone is not really going to, to uh, change our world, Donna and Sila. In order, in fact, to be, uh, to be precise and uh, powerful in our practice, of generosity and non-harming in order to really do this with, with the full amount of, of heart we need to be collected we need that third basket we have Dana, we have Sila the third basket is Bhavana Bhavana means meditation or uh, training training of our hearts and minds and this includes mostly what's described as the part of the Noble Eightfold Path, the four, part of the Fourth Noble Truth. This includes wise effort, effort and energy, finding balance in our lives in all the different ways that give ourselves, give, give ourselves as much vitality as possible, enough relaxation as possible, enough 
a clarity of perception as possible to be able to see deeply into that into the nature of interconnectedness so that it inspires us to act in a non-harming way so that it's not just cerebral so it it may we become constitutionally incapable of acting otherwise. That's really the fruit of practice. You just can't help it. So how do we train our minds? Buddha basically said, cultivate the four efforts, the great, the four great efforts. The effort to, the four efforts are to cultivate the wholesome, to train in whatever is wholesome in your life, whatever is positive, whatever is helpful, whatever is useful, just kindness, goodness, patience, generosity, all the different, uh, all the different capacities that we have to be loving, to be generous, to be compassionate, to cultivate the wholesome. Let all the wholesome forces grow in our lives and maintain them. That's the second one. And to abandon the unwholesome, that's the third, things that cause harm. Just think of one, just, just one basic precept, not, um, not telling lies. Stop lying. Or just another one, not, not harming ourselves with our inner speech. Renounce self-judgments. Easier said than done, but it's possible. So abandon the unwholesome. And then, where mental training comes in, prevent the unwholesome, the unarisen unwholesome from arising. That's how it's written in the sutras. It's really crazy sounding. But it means just prevent your mind from being overtaken by these negative forces that harm us. We do that with the training of mindfulness and clear, precept, clear comprehension and concentration. How do we develop? In order to have the clearest perception, we need some degree of concentration. How do we develop concentration? What did I invite you to do at the beginning of the sitting tonight? Put your mind in the same location of your body. Don't let your mind leave your body. Try it for one moment, relinquishing the past, relinquishing the future, relinquishing your ideas of the present, and you'll find that there is a, there is a, a natural stability that's there. There's a natural clarity. There's a natural sense of connection. Just in one moment, just notice what happens. Feeling your body after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises. You'll see, you're without, there's no movement, there's stillness. With no, and when there's stillness, there's, you're not flapping your arms anymore. There's openness. In that moment, there's no grasping, there's no pushing away. There's no here, there's no there. There's just life. You do this again and again and again. It is analogous to plugging into an inexhaustible current called life.
If that's too vague, just this simple moment, just try it with a person. Try using two qualities that you have in your mind. Everybody has. It's all it's part of our natural capacity to connect. Look somebody in the eyes and stay there for a few moments. Next time you're at this store, I mean you don't have to bulge your eyes out. You might be taken away by the police. But just connect for a moment. And then sustain that connection. This is using two qualities every person has. It's called vitaka vichara. Connect and sustain. And if you do that for... I don't want to get... I, I did this on the recent retreat and I got so stoned looking at somebody that I could hardly keep talking. But, but you will. You'll, within moments of using this quality, you will feel a sense of comfort, a sense of happiness. And with it will come this kind of rapture, the sense of being in a in a, a bubble of connection. And you will feel that you have arrived in the, at the center of the universe, at that single point that touches everything. And because, why did this happen? Because when you have, when you gather your mind to this moment and you stay there, what comes with it are three other qualities called sukha, comfort and happiness, well-being, quality of, of pity or otherwise known as rapture, and this concept I talked about before, ekagata, one-pointedness. All of that is within our heart's capacity to stay here. If you do this over and over, as the, the Buddha recommended, you will naturally begin to feel a certain power of presence and a keen observing power. And with that, with the sense of harmony from not being in the past, not being in the future, coming out of the tangle of fear thinking, living in silence for a moment, you will begin to feel this sense of great, great well-being, great calm, great sense of focus, and the lessening of the desire to be somewhere else. How many of you spend a lot of your time wanting to be somewhere else or some, have something else be happening? This is the disease of the mind. Constantly setting up what we like against what we don't like. Constantly toppling forward into, our imag- into that imagined future that never arrives. Projected into some kind of imaginary world, leaving the present moment, the only place that we have, leaving it vacant leaving it uninhabited, and then we wonder why we're anxious a lot. If you're anxious, and this is not a judgment, but if we're anxious, usually because we've held our, our sense of well-being is hostage to our imagination, to the future. And another reason that we get anxious is because we've lost contact with our hearts, and we've become emotionally inarticulate, not able to feel. So the, very, the fruit, the, the effect of this connecting and sustaining, of staying right here, heals all of that. 
it begins to open us to our emotional bodies, it open us to the life of the present moment and the lessening of the desire to be somewhere else and the lessening of wanting to do anything that would, um, that would oppose that calm abiding in this present moment. This is all within our power. And when this power is then applied to really carefully attending to what's going on inside and outside, then our mindfulness grows because of the power of concentration. It makes possible with mindfulness the arising of, of insight knowledge. It allows us to see deeply into the nature of reality. So concentration alone doesn't liberate our hearts. Ethics and morality alone doesn't liberate our hearts. But seeing deeply for ourselves, not just theoretically, seeing deeply through the veil of separateness, seeing how everything that we take to be me and mine is a changing condition, that that in fact there is no independent self. And the, the realization of that is the reminder that there really is no independent other. And that we, are, we inter-are, that we are connected to one another. And out of that, we, it circles around and we just want to be generous, we want to be non-harming, and we want to do nothing in our life that opposes calm. We want to become passionate about being just where we are, not somewhere else. Because this is the only life we have. Everything else is imaginary. This room, this night, this place, this is it. Your life does not exist other than this, except as a thought, as your imagination. This is the living reality right here. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. So good done anywhere is good done everywhere. So let's all be generous, let's all be non-harming, and let's train our hearts and minds. And next week I will introduce a a practice period, a new practice period. It won't be a 100-day one. It'll be a 60-day one. And it will, it will be, um, well, I'll say more about it next week, but uh, it will also include potentially two half-day meditation retreats and where we can all kind of build the, build the swing to the divine, as they say. As, as Hafiz says, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. You, you carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So, thanks for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. May all beings everywhere grow in peace. May all beings everywhere grow in harmony. May all beings everywhere grow in peace and harmony. May all beings become harmless.
you. So again, a reminder of our our um, room rental and teacher Donna, etc. Room rental here is six hundred dollars a month, one hundred and fifty a week. So any offering for our it really is not my group, it's your group, and so we're giving, whenever you offer to the room rental or teacher Donna, just makes it all keep cooking. So thank you in advance, and uh, see you next week. Happy to be back. Oh, also want to announce a day long that I'll be doing on February 4th at Spirit Rock on the, uh, boy, what is it? Somebody remind me what I'm doing. What's it called? Wisdom and Love. The face of, the face of, uh, all about the four Brahma Viharas. Love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Anyway, come one, come all.